Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. We're the Nelsons. I'm Sean. And in this episode, my wife, Lynette, does an interview with Molly. Molly is an international transracial adoptee who lives in the northeastern part of the United States. In this episode, she shares with us kind of this transformation that she's had recently as she's gone from having a closed adoption to having some reunification in her life. And as a social worker, she shares her perspective on what perhaps we as society can do to change the perception of adoption and ultimately the experience that many adoptees are having. Um, I think that you'll really enjoy this conversation. And as she shares, um, I think it's just great that we get uh, another adoptee voice to share her perspective to help us understand on a deeper level what so many people are experiencing. So we'll go ahead and jump into this episode now with Molly and Lynette. So we are here on the podcast with Molly. Molly, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much for having me. To start off, can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and what makes you you? Sure. So my name is Molly. Right now, I am living in New Hampshire. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I've always been in this New England area. I'm married, um, have a dog named Emily, um, and I am a social worker. I'm a medical social worker, so I work um, in a primary care office right now. I've been in healthcare for a little over a decade now, been a while, but a social worker uh, for about five going on six years now. Yeah, when I'm not working, I'm, I'm just um, enjoying time with my husband, the pup friends. I love cooking, music. I love writing. Well, I love New Hampshire. I think it is such a pretty place. And I feel like we're friends. I like a lot of those things, too. Anyway, so fun. Well, thank you. So to start off, can you share your adoption story? Sure. So I was adopted when I was two months old um, from Bogota, Colombia to two American parents, uh, my mother and father. So this was uh, late 80s. <laughs> so it was sort of a, you know, I was like, oh, it was an interesting time to like go over there. But yeah, they um, came to get me. Um, it was through an agency called Fauna in Bogota. It was a closed adoption. So everything there is just completely closed from my understanding. They give you some some records so I've kind of always had like sort of minimal you know information story what else um yeah so they um they had to stay there for like some time obviously like since I was two months old I don't remember a lot about like that <laughs> that journey um on the plane or anything like that I grew up in Massachusetts I my father had a son from a previous marriage who lived with us at the time a biological son when I was almost five they adopted through a domestic adoption, my younger sister. Then we had a um, another, like a friend of mine in elementary school who came to live with us and sort of like under foster care and then kind of became guardianship like later in elementary school. So I have two adopted sisters. Growing up, I uh, didn't really have a lot besides like my siblings. Like I didn't really interact with a lot of other adoptees. I always knew about my adoption. Um, I don't like remember there being like a specific moment where I was told. I just sort of always as far back as I can actually remember, kind of just remember knowing that that I was adopted, where I was adopted from. My mom always tells the story, you know, of coming over to get me from Columbia. And I did know like my birth name and I knew my biological mother's name as well. So actually when I was younger, like when I was in maybe like kindergarten, like early grade school, like I actually used to include like my birth name, like as part of my middle name. Um, and I already have like a hyphenated last name because both my mom and dad's last name. So I had like a very long way of <laughs> introducing myself in early grade school. It was something that, yeah, I just would kind of go around telling people this really long, like six named <laughs> name. Um, and I did know the name of, my, like I said, my biological mother. But beyond that, like I didn't really know much else. It wasn't really until middle school 
maybe a little bit later, grade school, middle school, high school, being adopted, like, which just wasn't really a huge part of, like, what I considered part of my identity, um, or so, you know, I, I thought, at, you know, at the time. It wasn't really until, like, maybe kind of towards the end of high school that I started to have a little curiosity just in kind of learning more about uh, my biological family and their story. I didn't want to try to connect, like, have contact with them necessarily. I don't know if it was that I didn't want it or if it was, like, a fear of what other people might react as, but I think it was, I think there was some fear in all of that. Um, so at the time I just decided that I was going to reach out to Pana, uh, get some more, you know, ask them if I could get just like some more history. And they responded, they told me that in order to do that, I had to be 18 years old, that I, you know, was obviously welcome to come there and, you know, get some more from the records once I was 18. I'm a little unclear if I had to go there to get that. That part's a little fuzzy to me just because it was like a long time ago, but I do know I definitely had to be 18. Um, impossible that I had to go there in person. That, that part I'm not sure about. So when I was, so after my freshman year of college, I uh, went to visit. I actually traveled by myself. My father had an alumna from his school that he works at who lived actually in Bogota, Colombia, and had said, if your daughter ever wants to come over here, she's more than welcome to. So I uh, stayed with her for part of the time. And actually part of the time I stayed in this place called Betty's Place, which is for adoptive parents who are adopting, you know, from Colombia, from, I think generally from other countries who go and stay there. Um, so I actually stayed there and I think my parents helped me like set up some of the logistics of the trip and everything. Um, and then part of the time, like I said, I stayed with this woman, Maria, who was an alumna and had gone to the school my, that my dad works at. I went there for the first time. I was 18, just what was I 19? I might've been 19 at the time when I went there. I loved it. It was just such an amazing experience. Um, I it was really lucky because Maria was able to show me around and as a local and take me places that normally like wouldn't be able to go so it was not just like a touristy type place uh, a touristy type trip I mean um we were able to kind of go out to some of the more like rural areas she had a family who had like a ranch somewhere she really kind of just took me all over and I just kind of got to soak it in and realize how beautiful it was and I didn't know that, like I had no idea about any of that. You know, it, it didn't have the best rep at the time as a country. My impression was like, was kind of a little bit nervous. And people, when I told people, like I was like sort of flying over there alone. And even though I wasn't gonna be like going around by myself, like I think people were like, really? Wow, you know, it was just like kind of the stigma. It just made it all, you know, all the better when I was actually over there and I could, I was just like, blown away by just how beautiful it was and how much green greenery you know just um it's one of the most biodiverse countries in the world and it just was uh not what I was like expecting and so I just I loved it I did go to sauna um I was able to get some information very limited it felt like a, a very little amount of information for all of that even though I was happy to have gone on the trip anyway um but they just gave me like a little sort of blurb about like my biological mother's story and like what I sort of learned was that uh, she had already had five children and that my biological father was sort of saying he wasn't going to be involved at the time wasn't supporting her and then she felt like she didn't have the means to support another um, child and they talked a little bit about like some of her childhood like some of her upbringing but again very vague just not like a lot of information and my understanding was that like the two siblings who were like older than me or the one sibling sorry who was older than me not two the one sibling who was older than me had the same father but some of the rest of them had different biological fathers so that was really it and I got like a a copy of her ID which had like a at that time probably pretty dated picture of her and so that was like the first time I actually ever had like a picture of her definitely felt like when I looked at it like I looked a lot like her so I remember I always kept like all of that paperwork in like this very I actually still have it in the same folder um 
you know, keep it uh, in a safe place. And um, every, you know, every once in a while, kind of look at it and a lot of it like in Spanish. And I would sometimes look at the picture and like, feel like, okay, yeah, I see like, you know, I see some of myself in her. But when I came back uh, from the trip, it was, I just don't really remember like, sort of processing it really like I just kind of went back into business as usual and was in college at the time so didn't really kind of go there again I guess in terms of thinking much about the trip or things like things like that when I was graduated um, college I worked for a couple of years and then I went back to graduate school to get my MSW my master's in social work and my friends and I decided that we wanted to take uh, a trip together because she was starting a master's to be a nurse practitioner. So we decided we were gonna take a trip together. We decided actually to go to Colombia and Argentina. And so we took this trip together. And again, we went back, we saw Maria who was the woman that had um, shown me around before. We stayed with her part of the time, but most of the time we were at a hotel. It was a little more touristy this time just because my friend, one of my best friends uh, was there and we wanted to show her some some things. Um, but again, we got to, you know, kind of drive around the countryside and everything. Uh, both again, I think we did go back to Fauna that time as well. Then again, yeah, I came back and just kind of was like right into grad school. Didn't really like, I don't think I really like processed a lot of it again. Just kind of right into grad school, like a you know, wonderful trip. All right, now I'm back. And sort of was that way like for a while. Um it wasn't really until the pandemic started and was that sort of beginning phase that I'm sure like as all of us were kind of, <laughs> you know, stuck inside with all our thoughts and, and um, part of what I think started to kind of move me towards like processing my adoption and everything was that it, was, it wasn't actually something that I was really setting out to do. I it was around the time that George Floyd was killed and I, I knew like, I really felt that, you know, very strongly and I wanted to sort of figure out like, how can I, you know, learn more, unlearn certain things and just, you know, how can I be a part of this, you know, this movement and how can I be an anti-racist and, and I kind of realized you know, Molly, you can't really do this until like you understand like your own racial identity and your own ethnic identity, um, which wasn't something that I did really understand. It was very confusing to me. So sort of through that and different social media portals and everything like that, I stumbled sort of somehow across the adoptee community online. It just sort of happened by accident. Just from there, it really was like this realization of how everything kind of intersected. Ended up finding some adoptee groups that I joined. I was thinking about trying to find my biological family at that point. It was something that I was like, I'm not really sure about. I'm just kind of easing into this and I don't know if I want to do that yet. And then the need just really grew a lot for me for a lot of different reasons. Last July, I really decided like, I'm going to do this. I, I want to I want to try to find them. So I ended up trying to do it on my own first, just like through social media. And then I didn't really have much luck. I just found somebody who had the same name, lived like in the same location, could have been around the right age, reached out. Like clearly the person didn't have like Facebook Messenger. So that was sort of like a dead end. Then I kind of took a break because I was a little discouraged about that. A sort of a, a couple months later, I, I said, what else can I do? Someone else was trying to help me who had a connection there. That was another dead end. So finally, in like late, late October, I said, okay, I, I need to hire somebody who like can really do this. Like not, not a, this wild goose chase I'm trying to do myself. So I went through Healing Puentes. She's a Colombian adoptee who lives in Bogota now and helps with reunion. And, and so that was really helpful because she lived there. And so she was actually able to go to, I don't quite know what office it was, but some sort of office that provides some kind of assistance there. 
and she was able to get a phone number. And so this happened like right at the, the start of November, I want to say. So she was able to get this phone number and we didn't really know who it belonged to. Um, she reached out and the person was a little bit weary, it seemed like, and we didn't know if it was my biological mother or a sibling. But because thankfully I had like the cedula, which is like their social security number and everything, like we we could pretty much confirm by the name and by that that it was the right account anyway. We just didn't know who this number was. She kind of texted back and forth with this person for a little bit. That finally, I think she said, um, this person hadn't just shut her off, but was kind of like very cautious seeming. Um, finally, she said, you know, offered to have a phone call to kind of explain the situation. And then she called me to update me. This is like in the middle, like kind of the middle of November-ish. And she called me to update me that it was my biological sister, uh, her phone number. She had, you know, explained the situation. My biological sister didn't even know that I existed. She had offered, like, at some point, if you sort of want to sit with me, this is to my, my biological sister. She said, you know, if you want to sit with me, you know, kind of process some of this, talk about it. Um, you know, let's pick a time. And, and I guess um, my biological sister, her name is Paula, she said, uh, yes, I, I what are you doing tonight? <laughs> so they ended up meeting that night and um, I was able to FaceTime in for a little bit, which was surreal. The next part of it was that she was going to tell my biological mother that I had found them. She told her the following week my biological mother needed a, like a little time to sort of process and sort of reel from it. It wasn't too long. I want to say it was like maybe a couple of weeks. We were able to set up a video call with them, uh, with both of them. And um, thankfully I had Elena from Healing Puentes there to like be on the call and interpret, which was just huge, huge support. And I just was in total shock. So like I, I had like a million questions and I was like, so excited. A camera came on, uh, first talked to Paula a little bit. And then once my biological mother came on the screen, I just like, I don't know, I just went like, had a, like I just was in complete shock. So I hadn't, I didn't even know what to say. I just like froze. Thankfully, she sort of started to talk and share some of the story. My husband actually filmed that moment so that I could go back and kind of watch it when I was not in like this place of not really fully processing all of it um and I'm so glad that he did that that's been that was really helpful to have that um but yeah just learned some more about my story they were right she did have five children I was I was the sixth at the time the same that they told me about my biological father part they sort of missed was that at the time Paolo who's the who's the one who has the same father as me and is actually just were very close in age, like 15 months, was having some sort of health problem at the time and was in the hospital. And so that kind of added to her, you know, desperation and feeling like I don't have any support. I have a sick kid and someone in the hospital told her about Fauna. And so that's how I guess she found out about Fauna and went through that route. I learned that I have a younger brother who also has the same parents so that was kind of surprising and he's eight years younger and then I have um four I guess would be like half siblings so a lot seven total <laughs> including myself yeah that brought us up to like towards the end of November so it's pretty recent it just it feels like it's been a long time but also it just happened like a couple months ago and it's been an experience. It's definitely been a roller coaster. And I definitely am happy that I did that and was able to find them. So that kind of brings, yeah, brings me up to the present. Wow. That's incredible. So after that initial meeting with your mother, have you been able to meet with her online again since then? I have both of them on like WhatsApp and I haven't done another video call, unfortunately. So she doesn't really have great like internet connection. So that's been sort of frustrating, a little bit of a barrier, trying to kind of maybe figure that out with them. Um, and then my bio sister, Paola, uh, she's like works a lot. Like she's actually, she's a lawyer and she also does modeling and she teaches like a 
some sort of class too. So she's like constantly like busy. So it's she it's hard for her to get over and like set up the video call. And she's a, she's a little bit like all over the place. So it's been hard. That that's been hard to kind of navigate. So it's been WhatsApp. And the hard thing with that is that I have to use like a translating app. They're not the best. I just much prefer like the face-to-face and having like an actual interpreter there. It's a lot. Like it, it just takes a lot of energy. <laughs> and have you also been able to connect with your other siblings on WhatsApp? No. So uh, the youngest one, um, I have, I did meet him on the video call, but I don't like have his WhatsApp. I'm, I'm like kind of okay with that. Like I think for now, um, I don't, I think he's studying right now. He's in school. He's I think he's a little bit more like reserved and and so that's okay. You know, he was still willing to like meet me on the video call. Uh, the four half siblings, I don't even know about me still. So oh, wow. that's been definitely like a difficult part of all this is that we did bring it up at the call and sort of my, my bio mom kind of said, you know, I just need some more time. You know, we can tell them in time, but I need some more time. And it's like, I don't know how much more time you need, but it's, it's a little frustrating on my end. Uh, just that feeling yeah. of being a secret, like that doesn't sit well. I really, really like to, the other part of that is that the, one of the sisters is in Texas and speaks English. So like to wow. have at least her know would be just like huge for me. And so I, that is actually something that I'm going to bring up in the next phone call. Like I just don't want to bring it up on the WhatsApp. So once a plan, like yeah. the next phone call, it is something that I do want to ask just straight out. Like, can we at least tell her? And she'll probably tell the other two, because I think they have the same father. So, um, but that just would be huge to have, um, you know, wouldn't have like the language barrier and also just understanding like more about, you know, there wouldn't be as much of the cultural divide because she's been here for a while. So that is definitely like something that, I'm hoping will happen in like the near future. Wow. So this is all very recent, very, very fresh. Recent. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So in retrospect, as you look at your whole story, what do you wish that your adoptive parents had known about adoptee trauma and adoptee needs before adopting? Uh, no, great question. Um, it kind of feels almost like as if they didn't know like anything. So, I mean, really I would have you know, I, I understand in some ways that it was a different time, but like also to an extent of having two parents who are, you know, in education, uh, very educated, you know, very empathetic people, you know, there's disappointment there that there wasn't more attempt to sort of just learn more. And especially with it being like an international adoption. So I think, you know, I wish that they did do more learning. I know that there maybe weren't as many resources as there are today, and I understand that, but there were still some things out there, and that's one thing that I wish they knew. I think also the cultural aspects of everything, like I wish that that was really emphasized by by them, but also that the agency, you know, holds responsibility in that too. There's no sort of clause or requirement or anything like that. It's just I had no education at all about my culture growing up. Nothing. I did, we, like we didn't do anything. Like no traditions, no food, absolutely nothing. So that's hard because now I'm like in my 30s and I'm trying to like teach myself all of this and I feel like really behind. And I wish that they knew like how important that was in addition to just knowing about like adoption trauma. Trauma and understanding your culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what advice would you give to other adoptees who are searching for their families? Have a really strong support system. Uh, It is an emotional roller coaster, regardless of the outcome. Uh, Some people may not find their families. Some people might get a secondary rejection. Some people might find them. And even then it's, you know, it's an emotional roller coaster. So I could not imagine going into this without having a really solid support system. And it was one of the things that I said, I'm not going into this unless I've maximized <laughs> every support, which is like me being a little bit social worker-y. But, um, but that's why I found two groups. I have two adoptee groups that I'm in and I have a therapist. I have great friends, my husband, 
my sister, uh, you know, so I have, I have people that are really supportive and the people who are not adoptees themselves, like it's, they're supportive and, and it's just a different kind of support when you have, have people that have gone through it. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I would definitely say, like, it's great to have people for support, whether they're adopted or not, or don't have gone through this or not. I think it's important to have both and the therapist. I'm definitely a big advocate of that. It's just, you need a, a place that's just your own and that you can kind of process and because it can bring up a lot of stuff. And even as much as you might think you're all prepared, like when you get into it, like you're, there's just no way you can like really prepare yourself fully for it. <laughs> so yeah. that would be my biggest advice. And then I'd say also just like be gentle with yourself because uh, it does sort of awaken these parts of you that maybe you weren't really attuned to. And, and so have a lot of self-awareness and, and introspection and just kind of be mindful of that and just be gentle on yourself. Like if you're responding to something a certain way, maybe think about that a little bit, like and how that's related. And that would be the other thing I would say. And that is another reason why it's so important to have some of those other supports I just mentioned so that you can unpack that. Um, also started journaling as well. And that's helpful too. It's not for everyone, but definitely can be helpful. And then you also have your Instagram page and you started that pretty recently, right? Was that an additional form of kind of journaling or working through? Yes, it was. Cause I was starting to share a lot more like adoption related content on my regular Instagram, like my private personal Instagram page and really just wanted a space where I could just focus on that and then maybe some other kind of social issues. So that's sort of what inspired me to do that. I was inspired by other people who've done that, found it, yeah, in its own way to be very like therapeutic and help me connect with other people. And so then the the reason that, you know, it's named the way it is, is because that Carmen was my name given to me um, at birth. And part of my story that I learned was that I always thought that my biological mother had given me that name. And that's why I was sort of so, I think part of why, like looking back, like I was so proud of it and included it in my name. And then I come to learn that she didn't even name me. <laughs> um, so I found that out in, the, in our video call. Uh, who named me then? We don't know. I, I have no idea. Was it a nurse in the hospital? Was it a lawyer? Was I, I actually have no idea it was a fauna. I don't, I don't know. Um, she wanted to name me. She had actually picked out a name that she wanted to name me. They, and she said that, you know, and they basically in the hospital, they said, uh, no, you can't name her. They actually wouldn't even let her hold me. Like she asked and they said, um, you know, the paperwork has been signed already. So no, you can't. Wow. At that point, I think she was feeling really like, I don't know, what have I done here? You know? She did go back like a couple years later to find out if she could, you know, learn anything about like where I was or just how I was doing. And they basically said, nope, it's closed. Like, and they turned her away. They wouldn't even tell her what country. She's like, can you at least tell me what country? And they said, no. So she had no idea. So that was all very hard to hear. And so I was kind of like, I created this account, found out that the name was like not (laughs) actually the name that she gave to me. And so I was like, oh no, I just started this. Like, should I, should I change it? Ultimately, I kind of thought about it and was like, actually, it's sort of symbolic in a way. Like, it's sort of like this name between these two different intersecting parts. Like, it, it wasn't the name that my first family, you know, my first mother wanted to give me. Obviously, isn't the name that I have, you know, now for my adopted family. It's like this name that's like maybe the industry or that's like caught in between these two places highlights just like the complexities of adoption and everything so I decided to keep it as part of my username for that reason yeah wow yeah it sounds like I'm not sure exactly what adoption policy is in Colombia today but that's really interesting that she signed papers before you were born and she wasn't able to access any information about you wow yeah that's really awful how sad I mean I can't say it's like very surprising but you just it's still shocking to hear that sort of callousness that she experienced, you know, and she didn't want to push it too much because my like older sister was in the hospital and I think she was afraid that like maybe they were going to take her away. So she just sort of oh my backed off and was like, we need to 
get out of that. Yeah. So it's heartbreaking. Wow. Yeah. It's sad. So in your experience, what are some other ways that you can think of that family members, friends, loved ones can support adoptees and help them address different struggles they're facing? Really to just listen and learn. And I've been grateful that, you know, because I hear these stories about people's friends just being like really, or spouses just like not being understanding. I haven't really experienced that. Um, As I started to kind of share more about my story and open up and talk more about it, my closest friends with, with my closest friends and with even some people who maybe weren't aren't my closest friends of course my husband who's like my primary support was just sort of met with like support and with them asking questions just and so I think that you know I think the big thing is just being compassionate and also being curious like I think that if people are doing those two things like you really it goes a lot farther than people realize so if you're showing up with compassion you're showing up with curiosity if you don't know or you're not sure something's right or wrong, just ask. If there's something I don't want to answer, then I won't answer it. You know, that's where a lot of people go wrong. I think some people react with defensiveness because something maybe triggers them in some way or they don't understand it. We're all taught a very specific, you know, adoption narrative in society. So I think that, you know, with that being said, that's really ingrained in a lot of people. And it was ingrained in me. I got defensive at first when I was coming out of the fog. I was definitely seeing posts and going, you know, like, what? And and so I had to kind of be like, what? Why am I reacting that way? And so I think people need to do that. I think people need to, when they're starting to feel that way, because they don't necessarily agree with somebody and somebody with the lived experiences to sharing it, they need to kind of step back and, and not respond. If it's not going to be with compassion, or curiosity, if it's with defensiveness, then people need to understand that that's about them and that they really need to like unpack that for themselves and understand like well, where, where is that coming from? It's not always easy, but I, I think that that's the biggest thing I would say to people is just just listen and, and elevate the voices. And that's the best thing that, you know, that they can do to be supportive. Yeah. Well, I love how simple you made that compassion and curiosity. That's perfect. So well said. So as you've been learning more about your own story, how has that affected your perceptions of adoption? I've done like a total 180. I was very much like in the adoption is like a beautiful miracle narrative and a savior narrative. And that's all I have ever known or learned. So, you know, that's just how, how I was taught. Even if something wasn't quite right, like at some point, like I think I just you know kind of suppressed a lot and um you know there are things that are easier about that in a way with coming out of the fog and and really starting you know really processing because coming out of the fog is an ongoing thing you know it's not like you do it in two months and then (laughs) and then you're done so I think like when when I was really at the start of it and then in the thick of it you know it was just so much to unlearn and to to kind of look back and and reflect on certain things that all of a sudden it just kind of started to click you know, things made sense. Just that sort of part of my identity of just realizing like, you know, I've been telling myself this just doesn't really matter that much. And then, wow, this is really a huge part of who I am. And like, it's not my only identity, no, but it is a huge, this is a huge part of it. And I think recognizing that is very healing and it's helped me kind of understand like the trauma part is a big part and how that affected me personally. Also the the more like macro part, like the policy part too. So kind of both of those things and how, you know, they're connected. What do you wish other people understood about growing up as an international adoptee? I think, you know, for a lot of us international adoptees, not everybody, but a lot of us are also transracial adoptees. Like I said before, sort of like that access and that, you know, in your culture of origin and having mirrors, you know, it's just so important. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that. Um, And I think that's really important for people to understand like why that's so meaningful for an international transracial adoptee to have these mirrors and to, to know about our cultures of origin and perhaps like visiting them even when we're younger um, or incorporating, you know, traditions. I wish that that was just like a really normalized part. And I think gotten a little better but I definitely think we still have a long way to go I know it might not be like it was like in the late 80s but you know we still have a ways to go 
I think that people need to recognize, you know, that that is a part of our identities, even though we're seemingly disconnected from that culture, that that's still a, a part of our identities and it's okay to reconnect because I think without that sort of realization that leaves people feeling like we're imposters, like in our own, you know, roots. Um, and I feel that way sometimes. Uh, if more people understood that, you know, maybe more people, less people would feel that way. So growing up in the Northeast of the United States, do you feel like you experienced discrimination and racism? Yeah, so I mean, I grew up in a very, very little bubble, um, New England, you know, and I was in a predominantly, pretty much all predominantly white schools, was in a lot of diversity. Um, I was in private school for like elementary, uh, not elementary, for um, middle school and high school, so even less diversity there. It was something I was aware of as a child, but I didn't have any like ability to sort of verbalize that or like express that, but I definitely was aware of it and had people, you know, there were microaggressions, like, and there were people that would be like, are those your real parents or, or, you know, like, um, but where are you from? Where are you from, from like, where are you really <laughs> from, you know, and, or people just coming up and asking, are you, blah, 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 you know, like insert race, like it just, you know, there were things and, and as a kid, those get to you, but you can't like, you know, when I was younger, like I didn't want to sort of rock the boat in any way or like draw attention to that. So I didn't like to say anything like or speak up about it. I just sort of like sat with that, like as a little kid and didn't tell anybody, which is really sad, you know, looking back. And I don't want that for any other like adopted, you know, transracially adopted kids. Uh, so that's a big part of why, like I am speaking up and, you know, we can't change like my upbringing, but I hope, you know, we can go back and create a lot of change for these future generations. It's hard to like, I'll go into a room. I would always eye a room and I would know the one other person who was like diverse, <laughs> you know, I would go to, we would go to like, we would be like the diverse uh, group of people at school. They'd have like a diversity night or something strange like that. Those were just so weird. So <laughs> yeah, definitely felt isolating and I didn't see people like who looked like me I just didn't I had no mirrors when I did it was like not somebody who was like a friend of the family or like a a friend in school it was like someone random at like a store you know like it just wasn't there was nobody like really in my immediate presence who was a mirror and it sounds like you really weren't comfortable talking about these experiences or these needs that you had with your adoptive parents yeah I wasn't um, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I, I don't know, like, it's hard to go back and think like, what was 10 year old me thinking? Or what was seven year old me thinking? I mean, I think I can speak a little to that. Like, I think part of it was just that, like, everything has to like, be okay. Like, I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to draw attention to it. I was like a don't draw attention kind of kind of girl. And I, you know, done reflecting on that and how that's related to, I was very, very shy when I was little, a lot of social anxiety when I was growing up, like all through elementary school, uh, middle school, high school, got a little better, like, let's say like in college. And, but when I was like little, it was just, it was bad. So I think that was part of it too, um, was just, well, I don't want to point out like that I'm different, like. So if I don't like share this, then maybe people won't notice as much or, you know, I think some of that too. My parents, uh, my adopted parents, I, I just call them my parents, but sometimes like in this reunion process, I specify so people like know who I'm talking about. They're older, you know, they're, they're in their early seventies now. They're one, I mean, they're wonderful people. I love them and I'm very close with both of them. Do I wish they had done a lot of things differently? Absolutely. Do I feel like they didn't do a lot of things that they should have? Absolutely. And it's sort of a hard thing to wrap my head around a little bit. Like there's a lot of coexisting in adoption. <laughs> so that's one of those coexisting things because we talk openly about many things and this was sort of like a taboo. So what do you think some of the biggest challenges the adoption community faces are today? 
I think it's just changing this really dominant narrative. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just really everywhere you turn. It's connected in a commercial. It's in a, a good news um, social media feed. It's in a, you know, it's just everywhere. You can't like, you can't really escape it. It's in Hollywood, like this, this sort of, you know, savior narrative that I kind of alluded to before. I think changing that is going to be very, very difficult. And I think that's because a lot of people, I think, are very, people want to, you know, see things in like a positive way. And I think people don't necessarily understand sometimes when you're bringing up something that like maybe challenges that or like isn't completely positive that you're not saying like it's all bad. Like it's not always just like a black or white situation, you know? And so I think that that is going to be difficult. And I, you know, I, I, I think people get, like I said, that, that, that defensiveness and that fear, it comes from a place of fear and, and people being uncomfortable. It's a lot easier to take in those stories that are the mainstream story than it is to, you know, hear this story of um, trauma or, or pain in some way. That's construed like a lot of stuff in our, our culture, you know, you can think about the way we are about like grief. So I think, um, yeah that is definitely I think one of the biggest the biggest barriers with starting to make some of those other changes. We talked about how your reunification has shifted some of your perceptions about adoption and about your story. Um, Your training as a social worker did that shift any of your perspectives as well? When I was in grad school it definitely shifted a lot of views worldviews but the adoption part like I still was like I was still was like, what do they call like in the fog, you know, at the time so much so that at one point they actually did address adoption trauma in one of my classes, some sort of childhood development class, which is a great thing. I actually emailed <laughs> the professor like in a defensive, <laughs> in a defensive way about it. Like that's how deeply I was in the fog. <laughs> and like, again, now I can look back and reflect like that place of like defensiveness and the need to like email that professor uh, obviously came from this place where like it, it like clearly upset something inside of me, like, and really have insight into that until like later on. Um, and I'm glad they brought that up in the course. I, I hope they still do that. <laughs> it's really been eye-opening just being now more, you know, being actually in the field, you know, practicing as a social worker and seeing, you know, the intersection of policy and different social issues and, the interconnectedness, you know, with, with adoption, you know, I right now serve a, um, a population that's very um, low income, pretty high, like mental health acuity, you know, where it's been, it's been a very difficult couple of years in particular, as I reflected, you know, I definitely don't think it's like a coincidence that, you know, my sort of story begins with a mother who didn't have the resources and means to raise me, you know, to keep me, to raise me. And then I went into a profession that is about like connecting people with like resources and supports. (laughs) I mean, that's not completely lost on me. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that we have to see the, like how these things connect with each other because I see it all the time, you know, when I work that a lot of these people, well, they want to be together as a family and they would be able to do that or be much more able with more resources, with more supports, more community supports, more access to things. And that would help preserve a lot of these families and not have that, you know, a lot of people with like child protective involvement and things like that. And that's been hard. I've noticed a lot more of that. I don't know if it's just like one of those things where I think it's also that I'm just like hyper aware <laughs> of it now, but Absolutely. I mean, it's changed like my whole lens with all of it. Absolutely. I do think that's a really beautiful story of just how you think that you came into social work as a result of your experiences. I think that makes sense. All right. What else would you like to talk about today? I think I would just say, you know, keep listening, you know, wherever you are in the constellation, you know, all our voices can be heard. I I do firmly believe that, you know, the adoptee voices do need to be elevated because we are the ones living that experience. I'm so glad that we're seeing like two, like more first parents um, share their stories as well. But I think that we still need more of that 
and just normalize talking about some of these things that are not, you know, tied up in a little in a little bow. I think that we need to normalize some of these more difficult, uncomfortable conversations. The thing is, like, if you know, sharing, sharing like what you're learning, and people listen and respect when people that they know telling them something or teaching them something, and we need to use that. You know, this is a time where people need to use that and always centering uh, adoptees. You know, we are, you know the lived experience we're the group of the lived experience mm -hmm. so um centering that understanding that things can coexist i mean that's been one of the biggest lessons that i've like been learning it's like i can love this thing but also be so horrified by this thing you know it's just like i can i can love my adoptive parents and i can also have this love for my biological family um I can be very disgruntled, you know, with and and sort of horrified a lot of the time with like the adoption industry, but also still love my adoptive family, you know, and I can, um, I, there's just a lot of things that like this, all these dualities, you know, and all these nuances. Um, I think we just need to give a lot of space for those. And, um, Listen, someone's telling you about their trauma or their story, just listen and try to learn from that, you know, because it doesn't mean they're saying you're bad or everything's bad. It just, it's just people trying to bring awareness to some things that just have not gotten any awareness. It's so beautiful. Compassion and curiosity. That's going to stick with me. Yes. Those two things. Yeah. If people yeah. have those down, then that goes a long way. You know, there's the, a, a talk of, are you for, are you against adoption? I mean, the reality is, is that it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So, you know, what can we do to make this more ethical, to make this better as it is now? When there's less adoptions, that, that's a good thing. That means there's more resources and there's people getting the support that they need. It's been wonderful to see some of the, some more stories kind of getting more public. I know some documentaries that kind of came out and, um, I just think, yeah, we need, we absolutely need, need more of that. And we've been creating our own tables instead of waiting to get like invited to people's tables. And, um, and I think, you know, exactly like what you're, what you're doing, you know, with this podcast, which is highlighting many different experiences and, and perspectives. And I so admire that and think it's just an awesome thing. So thank you so much, you know, for, for what you're doing. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all that you shared, for taking time to be here. Thank you. so much for listening to this episode of the open adoption project and thank you again so much to molly for sharing your story with us we're always so grateful to hear these different adoptee experiences and be able to learn from people who have lived through adoption right and really our focus is always how we how can we help adoptees how can we improve the experience that they're having and it's so helpful to hear adoptees like Molly shed light on this and share the things that have been hard and the things that they're feeling and just their truths, right? And hopefully it can help all of us to be more compassionate and better in all that we do. Something that I really loved that she talked about a few times in this episode was how we can listen to adoptees with curiosity and compassion. I thought that was just such fantastic advice listen and don't have your guard up, right? And be ready to hear without having your defenses up or being worried about getting offended, just focused on hearing what they have to say without any ifs or buts. Yeah, I really like that too. I think that often we get really comfortable in the situation or circumstance that we find ourselves in. And when we hear stories or experiences, that perhaps differ from our own lived experience, it's easy for us to make a judgment about that. And yeah, I really liked that she kind of encouraged that 
type of communication where if I find myself wanting to react in a way to something that's said, why am I reacting? Like what what's what's getting me to that point? And so that's something that I walked away with, with from this lesson and not to only apply it in the conversations about adoption, but really in everyday life when when I find myself not seeing eye to eye with somebody or wanting to react perhaps in a negative way, uh, questioning what's going on inside of me that's making me feel or think this way. I love that. Yeah, so applicable on so many levels and different parts of our lives, right? I also liked how she talked about the importance of adoptees having cultural and racial mirrors and how to honor international adoptees' cultures of origin. I think that's a really important conversation we need to keep having. Yeah, and we've talked about that a little bit on previous episodes, but if if an adoptee doesn't maybe match the racial makeup of their adoptive family, that it really falls on the adoptive family to make sure that they're providing mirrors and experience and cultural opportunities uh, so that they feel that connection in an experience that might be absent of it. Yes, we want our children to feel like all of them is loved and accepted, every part of them, and honoring their cultures of origin and respecting the differences and helping them know that we value every part of them, I think is just such a key, important thing to do. Yeah, and I think that that's a great thought. It also makes me think of just the importance of open adoptions in general. Like I think of our four children, they are all so unique and distinct individuals and the people that love them for who they are and their little quirks and everything, the more love and the more support that they get, no matter what background they come from, how well they're doing in school, what their talents or skills are or what they struggle with, if they feel that love, um, it goes a really long way. And so I, I just really love that thought. And I think it could be applied to any, any relationship, especially adoption situations. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Open Adoption Project. Thank you also for those of you who've given us a five-star rating or have left comments. It really helps other people connect with uh, the adoption community and we just love getting people's voices out there so if you haven't left a review or rated the podcast please do that so we can continue connecting with more people again thanks so much for listening to this episode of the open adoption project we'll be back next week